This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this garden called life, for a long time dirt is only dirt. If I stare long enough, I can't be sure if there was a hole at all. And how many seeds are under there now, waking or withering in the darkness. From the poem A Waste of a Life, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. I achieve absolutely nothing the day after my mother dies. It is a day spent on the sofa, MacBook open on my lap as I search the internet for answers it probably doesn't have. And when my eyes begin to feel like they're bleeding, my contacts fogging up until I blink. I take a break. But only from looking at the screen, not from obsessing. I talk first to my friend Katie. They arrested him, I say, referring to my Uncle Joe. For her murder? she asks. For the outstanding strangulation warrant, I don't think you can officially be charged with murder until they have conclusive evidence. I don't think they have that yet. In fact, I must face the reality that they may never have enough to convict him. If it really was drugs that killed her, and he was the only one there that night, it would be her word against his, and she's dead. Nothing can stop him from saying that she took the drugs herself, from saying it's her own fault, whatever happened. I'm sure that when my uncle called to tell me my mother had died, there had been a reason he'd been reluctant to use the overdose story. The police didn't know her. They could take one look at her history and pin her as just another, quote, dead junkie. And I believe Joe was counting on that. As for the evidence, we're left with only three clues. Quote, the condition of my mother's body and how it was found. The state of her room. And lastly, my uncle's changing story. A story that didn't hold under interrogation. My uncle told me he went into her room Saturday morning and found her dead that she was blue, that he wasn't sure what killed her, but he'd think she took something, that he, quote, knows what an overdose looks like. What my uncle told the police is that he came home from work and found her on the floor, that he put her in her bedroom, hoping that she'd be better in the morning, that she'd sleep off whatever was happening, that he thinks she broke into his safe, took his heroin, that she had a history of heroin use, which was a lie that they had thought about money that night, but that he hadn't hurt her, he swears. So where does that leave us? Detective Barnes sums it up well. I think he did something to her, I just don't know that I can prove it. 
My mind wrestles with the two versions of my uncle's story as I try to decide which might be more true. At first, only a couple things are clear. My mother is dead, and my uncle lied to me. Katie, good friend that she is, helps me to tease apart his story. Assuming he's not lying about finding her in the floor, why didn't he call anyone when he found her? I ask. Because he's a bastard, is Katie's reply. It's not like he doesn't know what can happen, I say. If my uncle can walk into my mother's room and after one look claim it was an overdose, as he did on the day of her death, then either one, he knows what she took and that it could kill her, or two, knows what an overdose looks like. I suspect it's both. My Aunt Renee, my mother's and Joe's older sister, died of an overdose in December of 2003. He claims that he was there that day, that he was the one desperately trying to put clothes on my Aunt Renee after finding her naked in her bathroom floor. He wanted to dress her before the police came. Whether or not this is true, I can't say, but my uncle has been an addict for a long time. He's been on hard drugs alone for at least 20 years. He would have known what an overdose looked like. He would have recognized the symptoms while it was happening, not just what a body looks like after death, because he would have been on alert for those symptoms in himself. And he would have also known solutions like naloxone exist, that overdoses can be reversed if someone gets treatment in time. He had this knowledge when he found my mother unconscious. If he really came home and found her collapsed in the floor, he would have recognized it for the overdose that it was. He would have known, but he chose not to help her. Why? If I found someone unresponsive anywhere, I would call for help. Of course, here I'm being the over-rationalizer that I am, and I assume there must be a good reason. Why didn't he take her to the hospital? I ask. Maybe he was too stoned to drive? No. Katie stops me. She isn't having this. In fact, she's much more of a no-bullshitter than I am. He just drove home, she adds. Okay, so he can drive, but he doesn't want to. There's a thing called an ambulance, she says. Right, but he didn't call, so maybe the phone... She interrupts me again. The phone is working. You spoke to your mom that day, and he called you to tell you that she was dead. Well, maybe he was just scared to call the police, I ask. He doesn't have a great record with them, and there was the warrant. Yeah, well, he had no problem calling them to say she was dead, she finishes. I have nothing to add to this. She's right. The phone was working. The car was working. He was able-bodied enough to move her to the bedroom and brave enough to call the police to report her death, but not to get her the medical attention she needed, even though he would have known exactly what was happening, what the dangers were? I just don't understand, I say, because clearly I'm still looking for a reason for this to not be true. There's nothing to understand. He's a bastard, Katie says patiently, obviously. And there's the last piece of his story to consider the bit about the broken safe. When he had first mentioned the possibility of an overdose, I had said, you told me that everything was locked in your safe. It is, it was, he insisted. Then how could she have gotten in? I don't know, maybe she broke in. Broke in, despite being physically weak and blind as a bat in both eyes. Katie is ready to dissect this too. Okay, she says. Let's assume he's telling the truth about locking everything in the safe, and I'm sure that his paranoid ass did. Are we to believe that the safe worked for four months 
at least since your grandmother died, and then just, what, stopped working? The safe is faulty now? No, it doesn't make sense. If the story is that all the drugs in the house, even my mother's prescriptions, were locked up in the safe, how did she get a hold of something that could kill her? It makes much more sense that any drug she came into contact with would have been a drug that he had given her. And if he'd given it to her, he would have been the one to buy it, to know what it was. Which leads me back to wondering why, how, how could he watch her overdose without helping her? How cold, how cruel does one have to be to do that? Of course, the only living person there that night, the only person who knows the truth of what happened is my uncle. But he's a liar. How does one find the truth when the only witness is a master of deceit? I need something concrete, something I can read and understand, like an autopsy. There are three parts to the autopsy, an external examination of the body, an internal examination of the body, and the toxicology report. The external examination, as the name suggests, is the review of the exterior of the body. If he had beat her to death, if he wrapped his hands around her throat or stabbed her, anything violent, the cause of death could be determined from the exterior examination alone. The internal examination covers the organs like the heart, lungs, everything else that happens under the skin. If her hepatitis C caught up with her at last, if it was the cirrhosis of her liver or liver disease or lung disease from her chronic smoking, maybe even a stroke or heart attack, I suspect any of this could be determined from the internal examination. This part of the autopsy also checks for non-pathological causes, I want the medical examiner to look for air bubbles, Detective Barnes tells me, in case he shot her up with an empty syringe. I imagine my uncle chasing my terrified mother through the house with an empty syringe, threatening to kill her. I imagine her trying to shove the bedroom door closed while he bursts through, and how long between the moment of injection and when the air reached her heart, how long would she have known what was coming, unable to stop it, would she have tried to call me? Maybe collapsing before she could fully type my number? Christ, I'm shaking. I have to stop doing this to myself. My wild mind, though often useful, is a horrible creature when turned against myself. Letting possible scenarios spin unchecked is wrecking me. Stop. Please just stop. Just don't do this to yourself now. I'll have the results for the external and internal examinations by the end of day Monday. I'll know more then. In the meantime, I just have to control what I think about. Simple, right? And my mind isn't ready to give up so easily. I think you might not know anything by Monday. You might never know anything. And it's not wrong. If an overdose really is the cause of death, it will only show on the toxicology report, the third part of the autopsy. Unlike the external and internal examinations of the autopsy, the toxicology report can take months to come back. I have to prepare myself for that. Of course, if the report shows heroin as the cause of death, I will know he killed her. My mother has never done heroin in her life. If it's in her veins, it's because he used it to make her death look like an overdose. 
He was counting on the system's apathy toward addicts as a mask for the perfect crime. I think it's telling that while he brought up the possibility of an overdose, he never once mentioned to me that he thought the drug was heroin. Is that because he knew I wouldn't believe him? Because who knew my mother's addictions better than I did? I've been given an intensive education of her vices all my life. My uncle couldn't have fooled me, but he could tell the police anything, probably believing that I would have no reason to speak to them. I suppose there's the possibility that my mother was secretly a heroin addict, but my mom told me she was clean and I believe her. I even have her statement in writing. I know it's weird that anyone would send a good old-fashioned letter these days, in the world of texting and cell phones and internet, but sometimes there's no other way. And my mother sent me a letter just 11 days before she died. It's postmarked June 23rd. I probably should back up and explain why my mother wrote me a letter. You may be shocked to know that my mother never had a smartphone. She did have my old laptop for a while, but spilt Diet Coke on it and it broke. Her budget simply wouldn't allow for such luxuries. Before my grandmother's death, their income consisted of my grandmother's $1,200 social security check and my mother's $795 disability check. With those two monthly checks, they could pay the mortgage and utilities, buy a bit of groceries and supplies to hand-roll their cigarettes. And that's it. This is one of the reasons why my mother hated Joe's heroin addiction so much. It was already difficult supporting the three of them on those two checks alone. It was harder when Joe's addiction kept him from working, and he would steal their cash to buy his drugs. Not having money exacerbated her anxiety and kept her mental health in poor shape. This dire financial situation got worse when my grandmother died on March 1st, and the $1,200 check stopped coming. The mortgage payments were abandoned immediately, then the utilities. I'd paid my mom's water bill but couldn't cover her overdue cable bill which was somehow ballooned to over $500 after months of going unpaid. Then her cell phone was cut off, severing my one way of getting a hold of her. When I called the number and found it disconnected, I was terrified. I'd already been worried about Joe and her alone in that house, without my grandmother as a buffer. With my grandmother gone, I feared it was only a matter of time before something terrible happened. Without a way to call her, I did the only thing I could do. I wrote her a letter and included five self-addressed stamped envelopes. I begged her to write me back, to tell me that she was okay. I also wrote about a lot of mundane, useless things like what I was painting and the state of my failing garden. I was trying not to let my panic show. When a letter finally came with my handwritten scrawl on the envelope, I tore it open with great relief. She was alive, and after telling me that she loved me, that it was good to hear from me, she outlined the situation in the house. She was stressed about money and didn't know how she was going to make ends meet. And for her, Joe was the cause and source of that stress. In her letter, she said, I'm just praying Joe gets off his ass and gets a damn job quick. If he doesn't get his shit together, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm so stressed out. I feel like I can hardly breathe. Pray for me, honey. I need it really, really badly. I need God to work a miracle in my life. I don't drink or do anything anymore, and I need Joe to do the same. She knew they couldn't pay the bills with just her disability check, let alone feed his addiction, nor could she work. The easiest solution for their problems would be for Joe to get a job. How hard was he trying? I don't know. 
From the letter, it sounded like Joe hadn't found a job yet. So what was this job he told the police about that he'd come home from to find her unconscious in the floor? Or was this another lie? All this talk about dire finances makes me think of Joe's comment about the insurance policy. You can take $50,000 out on a person without them even knowing, he'd said, minutes after informing me that my mother was dead. How did he know this specific number? Why so much emphasis on without them knowing? Did he see their dire financial situation and think, I could get a job or I could murder my sister for insurance money? If his access to dangerous drugs were his means of murder, was money his motive? The idea that murder is a viable option for money isn't a new one. The infamous American serial killer H.H. Holmes was an insurance fraudster, too. It's speculated that Holmes killed as many as 200 people in his Chicago murder castle in the late 1800s. Despite his confessions and abundance of evidence against him, he was only convicted of one murder, that of his business partner, Benjamin Peitzel. Together, Peitzel and Holmes planned to fake Peitzel's death and collect $10,000 from Fidelity Mutual. So Peitzel took out the policy and named Holmes as the beneficiary. However, instead of using a substitute corpse as they had agreed upon, Holmes murdered him and tried to make it look like an accident instead. Surely paying off the cable bill can't be motivation enough for murder. Or was there something more at stake? The clue to this may be hidden in a phone call that I had with my mother, not long before she died. Full disclosure, I don't remember the exact day or time that we had the following conversation. I do remember that it was after my grandmother died, because my mother's memory loss was a topic of conversation, and because I was calling my mother two or three times a week just to check in. It would have also been, presumably, before the cell phone's minutes ran out, in early June. Regardless, whenever this call happened, in it my mother whispered, Joe looks like he got the shit beat out of him. I was familiar with the whisper tactic. It meant he was close, within earshot, and she had to watch what she said. When she'd called to tell me he'd strangled her, she'd also whispered. What do you mean? I ask. His face is black and blue. It's all swelled up. Well, did he say what happened? No. Well, ask him. I don't want to ask, she tells me. It'll just piss him off, but it looks like he got the shit beat out of him. Joe must run in rough circles. Buying or selling drugs doesn't bring you into contact with kumbaya people. But what had happened? Was it simply a matter of a drug deal gone wrong? Or was it more than that? Was it possible that in addition to the unpaid utilities and mortgage, did my uncle owe someone money? A bad someone? Did they threaten to end his life if he didn't pay up? Did they give him a little taste of that threat, maybe? If a drug lord says, give me X amount of money or I'll tear one of your eyes out, would you knock off your mentally unwell sister and collect the insurance policy post-haste? Worse, would you knock off your mother and then when that didn't produce enough money, go after the sister too? Because this idea has crossed my mind that it might not be a coincidence that my mother and grandmother died so close together. I know it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like something I would write 80,000 words about, slap a cover on, and sell on Amazon for $4.99. But stranger things have happened. Please, God, please don't let it be that he killed them for money, 
I think. Praying to no one in particular. Just the universe as a whole, I guess. Let it be a mistake. Let it be that he really did get a job, that he really was trying to do better, that one night he came home and found her and maybe even because he had gotten high after work, having waited all day, and so that when he showed up he was just scared and he just made a bad decision. Maybe his story about heroin was just a panicked lie in the face of law enforcement. Let it be COVID or her health that killed her. Let it be whatever was giving her seizures and memory loss. Anything. Anything but that my mother's caregiver killed her for money. To Katie, I say, he told me she was worse off than I knew, that she was setting pans on fire on the stove and stuffing things in the freezer. If he did kill her for money, was this what he told himself? Is this how he justified it in his mind? Did he say, I'm doing her a favor, I'm putting her out of her misery, that that was the real reason she needed to go? Why didn't he tell you about the fires, she asks. He said that she didn't want me to worry. Why the heck wasn't he worried? Better question, she adds. That's some negligence right there. Negligence, absolutely. And he might simply have been tired of taking care of her and wanted to be rid of the responsibility. But wanting to do something and being capable of it isn't the same. So do I think it's possible that my uncle could kill someone? Accidentally? Absolutely. He's a violent person with little self-control. If he loses his temper, all bets are off. If he lost his temper with my mother that night, if they really had a fight about money, it's possible that he lost control and caused enough damage with his fists to end her life. But cold, premeditated murder? There are things to consider. Did he move her body out of panic or fear? Or was it done according to plan? Was he home the entire time, watching the scene unfold? Or did he really come home from somewhere and find her collapsed? Then there's the rumor to consider. Whispered at my grandfather's funeral that Joe had helped my grandfather along, that he'd taken it upon himself to end my grandfather's suffering. And what did he stand to inherit if my grandfather died? Property and money, of course, just like my grandmother and mother. There is a term for this. Not for a greedy bastard, but for a person who believes that they're doing someone a favor by ending their life. This sort of serial killer is called an angel of mercy. Could Joe be an angel of mercy? Does he view himself as the dutiful son and brother, willing to make the hard decisions no one else in the family can? Verbally, he often paints himself that way. When he talks about rescuing my mother from the hospital when he talks about taking care of my grandmother with such pride as if he's never put his hands on her before. Is my uncle the sort of cold-blooded man who would let my mother lay unconscious on the floor as he tore apart her room looking for money? If so, it might explain the condition of her room that led the detective to believe something malicious had happened. And of course, there's one more damning piece of information. A bizarre phone call. On Friday, July 3rd at 10.10 10 a.m., almost exactly 24 hours before he would call and say he'd found my mother dead, I get a phone call. Mom knew cell, it says. And when I answer, it's Joe. I'm surprised because Joe has never ever called me. I answer expecting to hear my mother. Hello. Here, talk to your mama, he says in a slow drawl. 
He must offer her the phone because she says, Who is it? And he says, It's Corey. There's a shuffle and my mother says, Hi baby, is everything okay? I'm fine, I tell her. Are you okay? She laughs. I'm fine, are you okay? Yeah, I just... Well, Joe called me and I thought maybe something was up. Is something going on? No. We go on like this for five minutes, trying to figure out why the call was orchestrated. Eventually we give up, and I ask her what she has planned for the day. I ask about her health, her dogs. Fat, sassy, and spoiled, she tells me. She asks how my squash are doing. Terrible, I say. I think I have bugs. And then the call ends without fanfare. That's it. This might not seem weird to you, I know. But I keep turning this piece over and over in my mind. Why would Joe call me when he has never called me before? Not even to tell me my grandmother had died. Not even to tell me my mother was hospitalized. And why, of all the times that this anomaly of a phone call could happen, it happens hours before her death? Could it really just be coincidence? Or did he know what he had planned for that night and wanted to make sure that we had one last chance to say goodbye? of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.